Good morning. To think about God's word changing us, it's quite a thought. Are you ready to be changed this morning, to be given some new directions from God's word? Why did Luke write his gospel? Why did Jesus come into the world? Why did Jesus come for us? Luke wrote his gospel so that we would know exactly why Jesus came, who he is, and what he came to do to accomplish for our well-being. We've been studying a little bit about Jesus' teaching, his healings in the book of Luke, and and now we're going to be looking today, kind of focusing in on his relationships, his social uh, gatherings, and who he hung out with. And it makes clear that God has a rescue plan for the world. It's all becoming clear in Luke's gospel. And and Luke keeps hitting it with us again and again because he doesn't want us to miss it because we can. Uh, Anyone in the world can have right standing with God. That's a pretty amazing thought. Anyone in the world can possess a good standing with God, and it all is because of or available to us through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke makes it clear that Jesus' way and what he asks us to do is very different than what the world kind of tells us what to do or our natural inclinations of how to make a good life. The best life that God says can be yours and mine is through faith in Christ, believing in him, leaning on him, trusting our lives to him. That's a tall order because we can't see it. It's some of its future. You know, following Jesus is wonderful. And then it's not. Does that make sense? It does. Following Jesus is going to be costly at times. But Jesus is taking us, if we dare to follow him, into new directions with our lives. So that's what we want to look at today as we look at uh, people and their lives and how Jesus changed them. New directions. So let's take a look. First idea today, first main thought. New directions in us, having kinship or closeness to Jesus and his mission. I want to do a quick overview of the first five chapters of Luke. Because in this big picture, I don't want us to forget the big picture of Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke's early chapters make clear who Jesus is, what he came to do. See the big picture. You remember in Luke chapter 1, Luke's gospel, he wrote to Theophilus to assure Theophilus that what he had heard about Jesus is true. So he wrote his gospel to affirm it. He researched it. He talked to eyewitnesses to say, this is what really happened. So you can believe it. So he talked about birth announcement, John the Baptist's birth announcement, Jesus' birth announcement. Remember all that stuff we celebrated at Christmas just a a month or so ago? Yeah, the big picture. It, It was showing us that God was keeping his promises, that what was said hundreds, even thousands and thousands of years before, was now unfolding and coming true. Luke wants to show us that that's what was going on. When Jesus went to the temple, at age 12, and said, the Father in heaven is my Father. I'm about his business. He was making a declaration to those who heard that, those teachers of the law, those religious leaders, that he was the Christ. Then John the Baptist went out preaching, and he said, be ready. 
repent, get ready, because Messiah is coming. Get ready to meet him. That was a sign from God, a warning from God, that we need to pay attention to Jesus as who he says he is. Jesus overcame Satan's temptations. Jesus was confirmed that he was the Son of God at his baptism by the Spirit who descended down as a dove and when God the Father spoke. And then Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, made this big declaration. I've come to deliver people. Isn't it interesting? It was like a foreshadowing. A lot of people wanted nothing to do with him. The hometown boy didn't get well received, but the few that follow find out that he is who he said. So Jesus' teaching and healing ministry clarifies for us what God's will is, and Luke highlights just a few key events in his gospel so that we are sure to. So this morning, I just want to remind us with the big picture. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you believe that he is God? And if that's the case, will you follow him today or refuse his leadership? Because that's a decision we all have to make. John the Baptist put it this way. Uh, a picture of an, uh, an illustration of uh, threshing wheat. We don't do that anymore. We just buy it in containers, right? Um, but threshing wheat, you, you pounded it, and then you took a winnowing fork and threw it in the air. And, and, and the wheat would fall into a pile, the heavier stuff, the kernels, and the chaff would get blown away. And, and John the Baptist said, here's what the Messiah is doing. And we see that Jesus, with Jesus, this is happening. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we need to make a decision about Jesus. Is he God the Son? Is he the promised one that was coming to crush Satan's head? The quick review's over, but I don't want us to miss the point. We need to make a decision. If Jesus is the promised Savior, then his teaching and his ministry that Luke proves was true, we need to put our confidence in him. And if we do, we are not foolish. We need to do that. Secondly, second big idea today, new directions in us. We want to look at Levi because all these people that Luke writes about are like examples to us that we can follow. Luke wants us to know these people and, and meet these people and see how they decided for or against Jesus. Were they with him or not? Let's read again just the first few verses. After this, verse 27 of Luke 5, after this, that is, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, or Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Second time now, right? The disciples dropped their nets, left everything, and followed Jesus. Now Matthew, or Levi, the tax gatherer, the tax collector's doing the same thing. Discipleship has its costs. You want to be a follower of Jesus? Do you really? It's going to cost you something. There's a positive and a negative. Here's the positive. You get to follow Jesus. That's a good trail to be on following God the Son. That's an amazing benefit 
of following Jesus, of believing in him and trusting in him. What's the negative? Leaving behind stuff. Giving up the things that I crave or want. It's kind of surprising, though, that Matthew follows him immediately. Luke wants to make that point. I think Matthew knew who Jesus was. I think he'd been hearing his teaching. This wasn't done in a vacuum, but there's this challenge to us. Have you heard Jesus? And has he called to you and said, follow me? And have you done it willingly? I'm all in. I'm going to come back to that all in idea in just a minute. So here's this pattern in Jesus' ministry. Are you picking up on it? He's reaching out to people who are on the edges, the fringes, the not the big, important, famous, but the ordinary, unusual, or those who are kind of outcast. Tax gatherers in Jewish circles, and Matthew was a Jew, Levi, that's a, a Jewish name. <laughs> um, he was a traitor. He was viewed as a traitor because he was tax gathering for Rome. So he was getting rich or making profit from being a tax collector, supporting the oppression of the Roman world, the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees treated him like an outcast. It's like there was a sign on the door, no tax collectors welcomed here. They were not, Levi would not have been welcomed in their service. He was disliked because he was probably gaining wealth, kind of like Zacchaeus was, and we meet him later on in Luke's Gospel, because he was overcharging, he had a toll booth, he was making money and probably lining his pockets with a little bit of bribe money. I'll let you go through, oh, let's see, what is it today? Well, last week it was 10, today it's 20. You know, whatever it was, he was lining his pockets, so he was not liked. And then, but Jesus goes to Matthew, this outcast in Jewish circles and said, I want you to follow me. I want you to be close to me. I want you to learn from me. So Jesus initiates these encounters to call his followers into deeper kinship with him and his kingdom. That's an amazing invitation. When Jesus speaks, and think about this, people, my friends, he's speaking to us today through his written word, and he's saying the same thing. Come. There's always this invitation to trust him and to follow him down a new road in new directions. But it's not always easy. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said it another way when he said, come and follow me. He said this in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Have you found that life? Are you willing to go the narrow way, the harder way, to follow Jesus, the Savior? It could be that maybe you're here today and you're a little skeptical about Christianity. You're not sure. 
And you may be thinking, Pastor Matt, you're just trying to scare us with a verse like that. You're trying to scare me into, into church life, into following Jesus, into a holier life. You're asking me to give up stuff just to help you. Well, it's not me giving the invitation. It's not me get saying these words. It's God himself. It's your creator who's saying and inviting you, first of all, to come and follow, to believe and trust in him. And he's also warning you, if you ignore me, you're on a way that leads to destruction. But we see Levi, or Matthew, happily follows Jesus. He's happy about it. He leaves everything behind. It's like he says no to his past life, and he says, I want something new. What did he know? One of the commentators, Leon Morse, that I was studying said this, don't miss the heroism, the heroism of this moment. The fishermen, if this thing with Jesus didn't work out, they could have gone back to fishing. But Matthew, you leave the tax booth, the Romans are not going to invite you back to the tax booth. You've made a decision. You've made a choice to make a break, to go a new direction. He's all in with Jesus. That's an amazing thing. So Levi was giving up all kinds of stuff, but he was gaining his soul. What did Matthew do? Look at verse 29. And Levi, or Matthew, made him a great feast, that is, Jesus, made a great feast for Jesus in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. So what does Matthew do? He had a banquet. He invited a circle of friends and said, I want you to see something. This is the new group of people that I'm identifying with. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm not embarrassed. I'm a follower, I'm hanging out with fishermen, and I don't know what other disciples were there, but I'm not embarrassed about it. I'm ready to go. I'm following Jesus. He was all in. What's it mean to be all in with Jesus? How about if you're older? You know, you have limited income. You don't have the energy like you used to have. Does Jesus only really want younger, energetic people? Or is he calling you to give up something, to follow him more deeply, even if you're older? Because I believe he does call older people to leave stuff. How about if you're a student or a young professional? What's it mean to be all in with Jesus when you're just a teenager? A student with hardly any influence and lots of student debt. What do you do with that? What's it mean to be all in with Jesus if you're a parent? or a single adult, or married, or maybe you're divorced. Does that mean you're washed up at your second class and God only wants these certain kinds of people? No. Jesus is giving an invitation to all of us to just trust and to follow and to leave behind not only the bad stuff, but maybe some things we love, but it'll be worth it, he says. You ever wonder 
do some Christians have to give up a lot and other Christians can be comfortable? Are you a comfortable Christian? Or are you willing to follow Jesus a little bit further and maybe give up things that you like? That's a challenging question. Is Jesus asking for you to follow him in a new direction in 2023? And what scares you about that idea? I would love to have a long discussion in circles right now, but I'm not going to do that, and have you talk about what scares you about following Jesus, about being all in, and really being honest with one another. Maybe you can talk about that later today in your car this week or in your small group. What are you afraid about following Jesus? What scares you? On the other side, what energizes you about the idea of being all in and following Jesus in his new directions? Because we know they're eternal and everlasting. Let me ask you one other question. What do you know about Jesus this morning that makes obedience to be all in possible for you? What do you know about your Savior that makes it possible to be all in or more in with your Lord. Because he is Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things. He's the Savior sent from heaven to overcome our sin. And since that's true, it makes total sense for Matthew and for you and me to be all in. But when Jesus teaches the truth about God, he stirs up opposition. And we see that happening here in this story. He stirs up consequences. Uh, opposition because God's truth opposes what the world says, what Satan's lies tell us, what we think ourselves about how good life can be without God. We're afraid to be all in, but Jesus says, don't make that decision. Be like Levi, be like Matthew, and be all in. Let it go and follow me. See where you'll go. Main idea number three, new directions in us. The necessity of repentance. If, you were, if the Pharisees and the scribes were invited to Matthew's banquet, they would not have gone, okay? Because they, that, they would see that as being unclean, that Matthew's kind of people would make them ceremonially unclean, unworthy. So eating with someone like Matthew meant that you were a friend with them, that you were condoning or accepting, maybe not condoning what they did, but accepting them as a person. So the Pharisees begin to murmur. Levi made this feast, and in verse 30 it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples. They're murmuring, you know, they're, they're outside, they're murmuring, they're talking, they're making noise outside this banquet. They wouldn't have been inside, and they ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So these Pharisees were out there talking, murmuring, and they're saying, disciples, Jesus is leading you astray. You're going the wrong way. You better be careful. Look at who who he's hanging out with. Let me ask you this. Would Jesus 
leads someone into unholy and impure relationships if he's the son of God? What do you think? So Jesus answers their murmurs, right? He didn't come to leave sinners in their sins. He came to rescue sinners. What did Jesus come to do? He came to save us. What are we sent out to do? We're sent out to quarantine ourselves from the lost? No. We're sent out to help the lost, to help them escape Satan's trap. But repentance is necessary. What is repentance? Repentance is turning in a new direction. Repentance is changing our thinking about Jesus and about ourselves. Recognizing God's righteousness and our lack of it. That's an interesting sound. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Changed thinking. New thinking about Jesus. Understanding that he's righteous and right. And understanding that we're not, that we lack it. And this is no cheap salvation. You don't follow Jesus and say, I believe and then go do what you want. It's a costly salvation. It's believing that Jesus died and suffered and he paid a great price so that you don't have to pay that price, but then you must trust and follow him. And it's a work of grace. Did you notice Jesus mentions, I have not come to call the righteous? But I want you to know something. There are no righteous people. Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us that in the book of Romans, chapter 3. There's none righteous, no, not one, no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we're all in trouble before our Creator. We can't overcome our own unrighteousness and meanness. We know it. The world knows it. We've been trying to fix it, and we can't fix it. We cannot overcome our sin, our unrighteousness. The only righteous people in the world are those who admit that they're unrighteous, those who admit they're not righteous. The Pharisees were self-righteous. What does it mean to be self-righteous? It means you decide that you're righteous. The Pharisees made up their own laws. The Pharisees said, here's the standard that we, we've decided is the standard to be righteous, and we've decided that we meet that standard. Kind of circle reasoning, isn't it? But that's being self-righteous. It's making our own standards and saying, I'm okay. I'm good enough because I've met my own standards. But they did not have God's righteousness. The only way to have God's righteousness is to believe have some very important verses just to remind us. A lot of us know this, and it's from the New Living Translation. I love the way it puts it. It's Romans chapter 3. After, after Paul the Apostle writes that no one's righteous, he says, but you can become righteous. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. Let me read it. It's up on the screen. Verse 20. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as he promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. 
And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who they are. For everyone is sin. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote again, for our sake, for our sake, that is for our sake, Jesus made himself to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what's amazing? Jesus is happy to be in the company of anyone who will humbly admit they need him to make them clean. And that's why Jesus went to Matthew's banquet to hang out with tax gatherers and sinners because he loves to hang out with people who will admit they need Jesus to make them clean. Jesus gives this amazing invitation and it has to do with food again, like Matthew's banquet in Revelation chapter 3. You might be familiar with the verse. And starting at verse 19, those, Jesus speaking, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me in my throne as I've conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is his invitation. An invitation to come and sit down. And he'll love to, he loves to eat with people who open the door and let them come in and rule their life. One other quick thought. We need to move on. Matthew's banquet is a picture of the banquet when Jesus returns, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. See, here in Matthew, there's this mini celebration feast going on with the Messiah, <laughs> the kind of people Jesus wants to be in his kingdom with him forever are those who just willingly admit that they need his righteousness that he purchased for them by dying for their sins on the cross. Real quickly, I want to go down a little detour this morning. How do you hang out and ask a couple questions? How do you hang out with spiritually unhealthy people and not get spiritually unhealthy yourself? Have you figured that one out yet, followers of Christ? Because Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And then Paul said to the Corinthian believers, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. Quit hanging out with those bad people. So ask yourself, is it possible to hang out with spiritually unhealthy people and not get spiritually unhealthy? 
Ask yourself this question, why are you spending time in bad company? What's your motivation for hanging out with spiritually unhealthy people? Is it so you can participate in what they're doing? Did you ever just want to be bad because you're tired of being good and it seems like good's not getting you anywhere? Or is that only me? <laughs> I'm glad somebody's smiling and laughing at me. You've never gotten tired of being good for Jesus. And you just want to be bad. You just want to try that stuff. How do you avoid that stuff? Well, God gives us resources. You know what they are, right? How do you protect yourself from foul language? How do you protect yourself from lying? How do you protect yourself from cheating or pilfering, compromising what you know is right? How do you, how do you protect yourself? How do you protect yourself from sexual temptation? How are you doing with that anyway? And it's a struggle, isn't it? You have to spend time with Jesus. You knew that, right? You've got to read his word. You need to talk to him. You need to pray. Prayer's just conversation. Just tell him you're angry. Tell him you're being tempted. And ask him to give you strength or not. What else? Well, instead of, if you're hanging out with bad people so that you can bring them into God's kingdom and influence them for good, then you also got to hang out with good people to make you stronger. That'll, that'll be good counsel for you when you're, when you're being led astray. You need to confront your sin. You need to admit that you're messing up. You need to tell somebody that admitting your guilt, that you need to change course by God's grace, by his word, by God's good people. Confront your sin. Admit you need a savior to cleanse you again. That's why we take communion. One of the reasons we take communion to reflect and evaluate and get back on the path with Christ. So Luke makes clear who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Jesus is showing us the way to be right with God. His mission was to rescue us, and our mission, we're sent out to be the same, to, to be influencers for good, helping lost people find the doorway to God's kingdom and repentance, changing our thinking, changing our understanding of who, who Jesus is and who we are. That is what we need to do by God's help, by his grace. Fourth big idea, new directions in us we got to replace the old with the new. And that's a work of God by his grace. But we have a part in that. Look at Jesus' parables. So they ask him another question, verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast off and offer prayers, and so do, do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. There's a right time for everything. Jesus, how come you're not fasting? Your disciples are too happy. Are we too happy? Sometimes life makes us kind of unhappy. 
The critics' complaints were that Jesus' disciples were having too good of a time. John's the Baptist disciples, they fast and they pray. They, 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 they kind of act miserable. And the Pharisees, while they fast and pray, they kind of act miserable all the time. But Jesus allows his followers to eat and drink. What's up with that? How can you be God's chosen one and you're never seen publicly fasting or praying? Well, we know Jesus prayed a lot but he did it alone. So he probably fasted a lot, and nobody knew. Did you know there was only one fast really required by God in the Old Testament? It was on the Day of Atonement, on the day when Israel was to come before God and confess the nation's sins and offer all these sacrifices. They were to worship God and be humbled and, and ask him to cleanse them, and, they, and all these animals were slaughtered on that day. That was the one day. They were to fast from food, to be mourning and sad for their sin. The other kind of fasting God loves is when we're merciful, the sacrifice of mercy and kindness and helping the lost and the poor and those who are in trouble. Jesus explains why they're not fasting. You don't fast when the bridegroom's around. You feast. You party. You have a good time. You dance. But when the bridegroom's gone, that's a reference to his crucifixion, when he disappears, then you mourn. Then you fast. Then you pray. And you ask God to help you stay strong and do his kingdom work, even though it might be hard. I love the parables. Verse 36, and he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. What is Jesus saying here? Let go of the old and embrace the new. Grab on to the new. I didn't come, Jesus is saying, to patch up a leak in the old, in the old ways, in the Old Testament. I didn't come to just fine-tune things. I came to make everything completely new, to make to finish what the old could not, old covenant could not finish. You don't patch old garments with new clothes. That would be crazy, right? To go buy a new pair of jeans and cut the hole in the new pair to patch the old pair because now you have two weird-looking pair of jeans. Of course, now there's holes in them that are cool. I don't, anyway, we won't go there. You don't put new wine in old wineskins because old wineskins are stiff and the fermenting in there will just explode them. So you lose the wine, and you lose the wine skin. It's a lose-lose, like patching a new old garment with, new, with a new garment. You lose, you lose. And then Jesus says something really strange. And no one after drinking old wine desires the new. Don't get stuck and satisfied with your old life. That's what he's saying. 
taste the new. Follow me in new directions. There's all kinds of commands. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, put off the old, your old life. Put on the new. Let it go. Quit practicing the old practices, the lying, the cheating, the fighting between yourselves. Follow Jesus and be new. Israel wanted to drink the old wine. Are you familiar with that story when they were in the wilderness? What did they want to do? They didn't want to go to the promised land. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Back to the garlic and the leeks, the fish. You know what they didn't mention? The slavery. Being enslaved. They forgot about the misery. We forget about the misery. Let go of the old and move on to the new. Don't be satisfied with the old and missing God's best. You can't keep your old before Jesus' life and patch it with some of a little bit of Jesus' new life and look good. You're going to be miserable. That life's not going to fit the world and it's not going to fit heaven and you're going to be lost in the middle somewhere and you will be miserable and we've tried it many times, haven't we? And it doesn't work. A little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the world and it doesn't work. It's not going to fit. You can't pour a new life of Christ into your old life and think it's going to be, be good. There's not going to be any peace. You're going to be tossed about like the wind blows the waves, uh, James says, when, when we try to be double-minded, you know, a little bit for Jesus, a lot for the world, a lot for Jesus, a little for the world. It doesn't work. You're going to be miserable. You're going to be dissatisfied. And if you're not careful, you might lose your life. Jesus says we can't serve God in money. Money. So you've got to pick one to be your king. We're so easily satisfied with our level of trust, and Jesus says, I won't let you be. Have you let Jesus down? Do you feel guilty about that? Take heart, believer. If Jesus calls you to follow him and you dare to take that step, he will never, ever let go of you. New directions with Christ. It's a glorious journey. It's never an easy journey. But it's worth the journey. And Luke tells us about Matthew, or Levi, so that we dare to follow too. Let's pray. Father and God, as we think about the new directions you want to take us in, I pray you would help us to believe and to trust that your new wine and your new wineskins are worth it. Lord, help us to see that it's unwise and foolish to hold on to the old when you have so much good and better things waiting for us that are new. Lord, help us today to believe and trust in that. 
Let it be so, we pray, for Christ's honor and glory. Amen.